Welcome to episode 92 of the Jackson Hole Connection, brought to you by Jackson Hole Marketplace, Jackson Hole's little community market on the south side of town. Please visit the jacksonholeconnection.com slash jhm to learn more. Hello from Jackson Hole. I'm Stephan Abrams, your host and guide today. Each week I sit with someone connected to Jackson Hole to share their fascinating story about daily life. I feel we can all learn so much from each other, and I intend to search out people and their stories, which will teach us all a little about life outside of our everyday circle. My guest today is Rich Oaks, the Emergency Management Coordinator for Teton County, Wyoming, and the town of Jackson. Rich first landed in the area over 20 years ago while working a summer up in Grand Teton National Park. Rich's job consists of constant planning, which hopefully never needs to be implemented. He says plans are nothing and planning is everything. While the role Rich has in our community is critically important, officially he really has no authority. Rich's main thing is to bring people together which he does exceptionally well. Training, planning, communication, and role-playing are all equally important for Rich and his job. In today's episode, Rich will share with us what it takes to be the emergency management coordinator, why a rural community such as ours should have and needs an emergency management coordinator, and why you should take action today to have your own household emergency management plan. Rich, super excited to have you as a guest virtually due to the COVID-19 here on the Jackson Hole Connection. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Stefan. You bet. Let's start off by sharing with the listeners today, what is your connection to Jackson Hole? How did you land here and find this place that we all have grown to love? Yeah, um, so uh, not from here, uh, as, as most people aren't. I'm originally from New Jersey, and uh, I I went to school uh, at Rutgers University. Uh, I went to the land grant school, and I majored in uh, natural resource management and forestry. And uh, I worked at a county park back home. Uh, it was on a salt marsh, and I worked there for about four four summers, kind of a doing a naturalist type of a thing, like a lot of kids programs, ranger led hikes, things like that. And my last year of college, and uh, my my advisor, uh, Dr. Applegate, he asked me, he's like, how do you like your job at Caddis Island? And I'm like, eh, it's all right. I don't really like the salt marsh. I don't like the mosquitoes. I don't, <laughs> I don't like the heat and the humidity very much. And, uh, and he said that, uh, he's like, how would you like to work at Grand Teton National Park? And I said, uh, that sounds great. Where's that? And he's like, it's in Wyoming. And I said, that sounds great. Where's that? <laughs> and, uh, so it's one of the square ones, right? I, I had never been west of Philadelphia. And uh, so it was, it was a big change. So the summer of 99, uh, I came out here. I had experience with uh, kind of public speaking and working with groups and things and, and doing nature programs. So that wasn't hard learning this area. Uh, and, and it's just so vastly different from, of course, the East Coast. So uh, that was kind of a challenge. But that's what brought me out here. Uh, the first winter, I went back home to New Jersey. But then after that, in 2000, I came out for my second year in Grand Teton and uh, been out here ever since. Right on. So you're part of the class of 1999, like me. I, I am. I saw that on your uh, on your profile on the webpage. I didn't realize that. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of in the same boat. Yeah. And how is your family back East? 
Uh, they're doing good. You know, my mom and my dad are getting up there. Uh, so this whole COVID thing has kind of got me a little nervous just because the population is so much more dense back east and there's just so many more opportunities for, you know, infection and things like that. You know, it's, it's very different. And, and we all know that we're in a bubble here in Jackson Hole. We, we, we know that we're, we're self-aware and, you know, everyone here is doing a really good job. I see them taking it seriously. They, they don't see it as much back home and I'm I that does concern me a little bit but uh yeah otherwise family's doing good I've got two brothers they're also back in New Jersey they've been able to luckily work from home and stuff so that's yeah it's been good cool glad to hear and considering you had never been past Philadelphia yeah before moving out here going to Philly was going out west that was was, uh, I lived on the shore in New Jersey so if we went to Philly you're like wow well well, that's west. like the that's like the eighteen hundreds when they yeah. were saying, "Yeah, go west, young man." And that it was, was like, Philly, yeah. And then there's that, nothing else past that, yeah. <laughs> that was a good Ohio. What's, yeah. what's what is further east, Ohio or Philadelphia? Oh, further east is Philadelphia. Yeah, Ohio. Is oh, it? that would have been yeah. That, that's the new frontier out there. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah, and now you have found your jam, your role uh, here in the county. You've probably had several other jobs just like anybody else but your your new role is is what uh so i am the emergency management coordinator for uh, teton county and the town of jackson so every jurisdiction um how do they free it every, every political subdivision by state statute in wyoming has to have what they call a homeland security coordinator so that's that's what i am according to the state uh, my county title is emergency management coordinator and the position is uh I'm, I'm actually nominated by the county commissioners and then i'm appointed by the governor governor doesn't know who i am or anything like that um it's 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 typically not a political type of a, an appointment but it gives uh, it, it, it kind of shows the relationship between this position. Like a lot of what I do is bringing the right partners to the table from different levels of government and, and, and the private sector and nonprofit and, and everybody, because in order to solve these big, really complex problems, uh, we have to have everybody. The government can't fix the problem and, and any single level of government can't. So that appointment by the governor kind of shows that there's a tie this position back to the state. There's a tie for me back to the commission, county commissioners. There's a tie for me back to the town council. So I'm kind of, I kind of work with all of those partners and then plus our local businesses and, and nonprofits and all that stuff. Uh, that's kind of my job in a nutshell. Well, I'm glad that you have coordinator in your title because it yes. sounds like you actually wrangle, coordinate quite a few people and departments. And There is a, a lot of responsibility with no authority. Um, so that's and 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 it's and and that's fine and it's interesting because um you know the the position uh in some other counties they just call my position would be an emergency manager right Mm -hmm. so you're managing something uh it, it was a very deliberate choice to make this position um the emergency management coordinator because of that, because I, I really have zero authority over any of the people that I bring to the table. They have to come willingly. They have to want to participate willingly. And at any point they can leave. And uh, I don't see that as a disadvantage. I find that uh, solutions that are brought about 
when everybody kind of has an equal say in that solution uh, and they can bring their strengths to the table, it tends to be a better solution. And, and people stick with it uh, as, as, as opposed to saying, well, I have the authority to make you do this. It's not, it's not the way I operate and I really wouldn't like the job if that were the case. So I, mm-hmm. I like coordinating. I like having responsibility with no authority because it forces me to have to be creative sometimes with how we, how we bring folks together. Sure. When was this position created? Oh, well, um, so the Homeland Security Act was written post 9-11 in the state of Wyoming. So Title 19, Chapter 13 is is kind of like the uh, Title 19 is like Defense Forces and Chapter 13 is the Homeland Security Act. So that kind of came about right after 9-11. Before that, there was uh, the Wyoming Emergency Management Agency, WEMA, they called it. And uh, it kind of changed over to the Wyoming Office of Homeland Security. And that's when these positions were given kind of these official titles and things. But there's always been that type of job, that type of position around. I mean, back to the 1950s, this position was civil defense. Like if you remember, you know, the old civil defense, like telling people, you know, do practicing duck and cover drills and, you know, black out your windows in case there's an air raid from the Russians or whatever like that. That's what this job was. And it kind of turned into um, emergency management. And now we're kind of seeing a shift where some communities, even in Wyoming, but definitely across the country are kind of shifting from not just emergency management to cover more of the homeland security, more of the terrorism type of aspect. Here in Teton County, that's more of a law enforcement type of uh, purview. And then I kind of handle mostly natural disaster type of stuff. Okay. Yeah. How many emergencies have you handled since you've been in your position? Uh, every day is an emergency. That's usually, <laughs> that's my, uh, my tagline in, in my little, uh, in the internal uh, county messaging system. Like it just says above my name, every day is an emergency. <laughs> and uh, so, I, I mean, I, I don't know, like the, the, probably the big ones, I, I don't have a written log. I probably should, but you know, the horse thief fire, was was a big one for us uh came that's the closest we've come to burning down a town of jackson well till the saddle butte fire and then uh budge landslide uh west broadway landslide uh we've had a couple flood seasons that really don't kind of make the media or the paper because people don't see the immediate effects but because a lot of the work is happening on the levees and stuff like that and people don't see that um so we've had some we had some flood seasons and i mean the eclipse uh, that was a fun one. Um, was that an emergency or was it planning? Uh, for, for two years? It was for me. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> that, uh, that was about that. That took up a lot of time, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess it depends on how you define it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. we do a lot of special events stuff, like the, the first years of, uh, rendezvous fest out at, out at the village, uh, you know, that, that first year that they said Zach Brown was coming and they were expecting 20,000 people at the village were like, did you say 20,000? That would have been the biggest concert ever in the history of Teton County and, and would essentially double the population of the county in, into one very small parking lot. And uh, so that was, that was uh, kind of a, there's a lot of logistical issues. There's a lot of public safety issues there. So we try to get ahead of some of those things. Some of the larger special events will work with them, but now, you know, the rendezvous fest is, has turned into a kind of a great community event and uh, Mm -hmm. they've got, they've got their stuff together. Like they've got a really good plan and they've built off of the one that we built the first year and it's, it's, we feel good. So yeah. So sometimes special events are emergencies or can turn into them. Anytime we have a large group of people together, there's always concerns there. We want to make sure they're safe. 
we understand when I say we, I mean me, emergency management. I understand that folks want to come somewhere on vacation. They want to have, you know, Teton County, we sell experiences, right? We sell, we sell memories. That's, that's our, that's our trade. So we want people to come here. We want them to enjoy themselves, but we want them to be safe uh, first and foremost. So everything else kind of, I think builds off of that. So I I understand that lots of communities have somebody in your position, Mm -hmm. but I think it says a lot for our community, what you just said, we sell experience and memories and the planning that went into place for example, for the eclipse, most people don't see the bet that it took you two years for the planning and coordinating to ensure that the population that lives here would be safe, but everybody that's going to come here and be safe. Yeah. Do other communities which have rely heavily on tourism take it to the same level as which which our community does with the seriousness? I, I think so. I mean, I, I can easily compare us to other communities in Wyoming and, you know, and, and not all have the dependence on tourism that we do. Cody probably would be a close second. And yeah, they all take it really seriously. And, and if we plan for an event like an eclipse or something and people are like, well, nothing happened. Great. That everything worked. <laughs> like that's, that's, that's what's supposed to happen. And, um, and that's, that's kind of the way we approach it is uh, we could put all this time into planning. It's hard to prove unless something goes horribly wrong, what we should have done, you know, and, and uh, if we planned accordingly, we brought the right people to the table and everybody had input and we're all working kind of that unity of effort. We're just all working towards the same goal of keeping our, our residents and keeping the folks that visit here safe so that they can then enjoy themselves and tell their friends and then they can come back and, and, and experience this amazing place that we get to live in, that we have the honor of living in, you know, then we did our job. And that's, and I would say, yeah, other communities definitely take it seriously. And I think, especially when we compare ourselves to some of the tourist communities that we would be similar to in, in Colorado, for instance, they definitely take it seriously. Um, We've been a very fortunate community. Yeah. We've had some disasters and stuff here, but we, we really haven't had like we haven't lost like entire subdivisions of homes to wildfires. We haven't had floods destroy an entire, you know, a section of our County and, 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 and re- we're rebuilding 10 or 20 years later, but in Colorado they have, and they've been seeing a lot of wildfires. They've been seeing a lot of floods. They've been seeing a lot of those uh, types of incidents. And I think that the shock value of one of those things, once you've been through it, uh, people see the value in preparedness and mitigation. It can be a hard sell, when you haven't had that experience here. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm happy if we never do. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do not, I tell people this all the time, uh, I don't make a commission. So whether we're having a disaster or not, I get paid the same amount at the end of the day. If I could go my entire career here in Teton County and uh, you know have nobody get injured, nobody's home burned down, nobody get killed, that is perfectly fine with me. Slow, boring days where I get to write plans for horrible things are great days for me. Enacting those plans are bad days because it means it means somebody in our communities um, having probably the worst day of their life, mm. and uh, and that's and that's something we take seriously. Well, I'm glad that you do, and the the people that you work with take it seriously, and I appreciate you the planning and uh, mitigation that you all put into place. Where do you receive your training <laughs> to do the planning that you yeah. need to do? I mean it. it it's, it's not a small task. It's, it's a, um, this is an evolving, it's an evolving field. And 
there's a lot of debate within the emergency management community over whether this is a profession or a job. And there really isn't an official designation or certification. So I, I have certifications through uh, the International Association of Emergency Managers, and I've taken uh, it's a lot of classes through FEMA. Uh, FEMA has an incredible training program that they run us through and uh, that we can take advantage of, and that's actually free to, to our local taxpayers. FEMA pays for the travel and they pay for the tuition and everything. So a lot of it's informal, but what's been happening in recent years and, and what we've seen with like a lot of our veterans coming back from overseas, from Afghanistan, Iraq, things like that, uh, coming back with the GI Bill, coming back with a lot of experience working with some of these terroristic elements like firsthand. And um, a lot of schools have started Homeland Security programs. So there's been a huge um, explosion in Homeland Security programs in, in colleges across the country. And we're seeing a lot of folks come back and take those because they have firsthand experience and they see kind of some of the root causes of some of these extremists and things like that. And they want to get into, and they still want to serve their country and and do it in a civilian way after, after leaving the service. So we're seeing a lot more degree programs that are looking at Homeland Security and emergency management. So it's becoming more formalized. Like I, I think that I got in, I, I had no background. I, I was a dispatcher um, for the sheriff's office for six years, which, which gave me a ton of perspective on the different agencies and entities that come together during an emergency response. And that helped me out a lot. And that was, that was an amazing job. And then I, I worked for uh, Teton County EMS before it became Jackson Hole Fire EMS. And uh, I was an EMT and I was an ambulance driver for them. And I drove the ambulance up in the park. So I had like a smattering of public safety background type jobs. I was a security screener at the airport before TSA came in. That was in the days of one x-ray machine and, and one magnetometer. And if either of them went down, you were patting down, you know, a thousand people. Uh, it was a still horrible. fly with a wine corkscrew. You can, and in those days, in those <laughs> days, you definitely couldn't. We were taking fingernail clippers from folks, but it, it's, um, but so I've had like a smattering of those different jobs with no formal uh, education. Everything that I've, I've made for this position uh, has been through uh, FEMA's training programs, through um, Department of Homeland Security. And there's a lot of opportunities out there for uh, free free training and stuff like that. Uh, and, and that's kind of how we built into this position. But it's it's getting to the point where for these types of jobs, I, th- I would say in rural America, it's not so much the case, but in larger jurisdictions, a degree is going to be required. Whereas this used to be the dream job for retired cops and firefighters, like like emergency management was the retired cop and firefighter job because most of those law those uh, uh, public safety positions they they have a twenty and out retirement. So once if they start their career at age twenty by forty they're ready to retire and they could start a whole second career at that point. So this was great because they had a background in emergency services and usually they knew people in the community so they could kind of move into that position. But we're starting to see that a lot of jurisdictions are requiring college degrees and a background. So my position I believe now, uh, and they changed the position description after I came into it, I I think now it requires a college degree and it did before, but it has to be in either emergency management or uh, like a business type of a degree. So it's, it's becoming more specialized. Cool. With your training, do you guys get into, what's the right way to put it? You have to, you're coordinating all of these different entities, county, town, private entities. How do you work to mediate all of these different organizations to be speaking the same language, especially when there is a fire, 
rolling towards somebody's home or a flood that's threatening somebody's house. Yeah, it can be challenging because everybody speaks a different language. Uh, when you talk to emergency management or FEMA folks, we talk in acronyms and it's very confusing and, and we forget that we're talking in acronyms all the time. Sounds like the uh, armed forces, like the army or Navy. Yes. Uh, well, and even then you would think that, oh, you're all talking acronyms. You can understand each other. But when we, when we train with the national guard folks, I have no idea what they're saying. Um, I have to ask <laughs> them to spell everything out all the time. Um, they, they even outdo us, but w with public safety entities, uh, we have something called, uh, the national incident management system. And that came about post nine 11, for the exact reason that you brought up is that we had cops and firefighters and EMTs and public health agencies. We're all using different systems to organize ourselves and to communicate with each other. So the National Incident Management System kind of gave us a common framework, some common terminology, and that gave us the ability to kind of work together a little better. It is used occasionally um, by the private sector. So like, for instance, when we did the Zach Brown concerts uh, for Rendezvous Fest, we used uh, the National Incident Management System to manage that whole event. And we had a three-party unified command uh, in charge of the whole thing. And it was the sheriff. Uh, it was the fire chief for Teton Village Fire Department. So they've taken that type of training before. But then the third was actually the production company. It was Highline Production. And uh, it was their lead producer. And those three kind of work together to manage that incident because we realize that with a big concert like that, the fire department doesn't have the whole solution. The sheriff's office doesn't have the whole solution and the production company doesn't have the whole solution. Like anything that could have come up, like God forbid that somebody got hurt or injured, you know, the production company might have the way to communicate from their security guards, but they don't run the ambulances. Or if there was some type of fire or some type of uh, a severe weather event, um, maybe the fire department needs to come out. So having the three of them working together and we set up a common organizational structure with all three organizations working underneath it, it, it allowed them to work together a little better. And we used similar framework for for the eclipse. Uh, we're using that framework right now for the COVID response. And it's kind of a fallback. So we're, we're starting to see private entities, especially when we talk in other parts of Wyoming, where it's more industrial, where we have more oil and gas and stuff like that. A lot of their folks are training in the incident command system because they realize that the fire department is going to show up to help them. And they have to figure out how do we integrate with them as soon as they show up? Because the time to learn how to respond isn't during the incident. It's, it's beforehand. So we do a lot of training and stuff for other entities as well in this national incident management system. That's, that's great. I, I want to get more into the training. Mm -hmm. But we're going to take a quick break from a word from one of our sponsors, and then we will be right back. Jackson Hole Marketplace has what you're looking for. Are you looking for a new place to stop in Jackson Hole? Well, try out Jackson Hole Marketplace. Easy and convenient four-mile drive south of town. We're conveniently located right off the bike path and the highway right in front of the bird. Jackson Hole Marketplace has the biggest and badass sandwiches made right here in Jackson Hole. Using 460 bakery bread, Cy Ginsberg Meats, and Boar's Head Deli Meats. Looking for more than just a sandwich? We have that too. Frozen drinks for kids and adults, soft serve ice cream in the summertime, and cold beverages. Cold, cold, cold. Beer, soda, Coca-Cola, and Gatorade. Stop on in to Jackson Hole Marketplace or visit us at jacksonholemarketplace.com. Please visit jacksonholeconnection.com slash JHM to learn a whole lot more. We're back from our break. You were just mentioning about training with the different departments. Do you guys go through role-playing 
training? Yeah, uh, you could definitely call it that. I mean, it's we do um, different levels of of training. So there's there's a cycle and there's a process. And when when FEMA and the federal government involved, there's a process for everything. And uh, so there's there's different levels. So we do everything from what's known as a seminar, which is where we have a plan written but we need to introduce it to a group of people. So that's usually something simple. And you just kind of flip through the pages, you show them the different sections, how it's used. Then we kind of move up to something called a tabletop exercise. And we usually involve a lot of different entities in our tabletop exercises. And that would probably be the closest thing to some kind of role play or simulation that we do. And it's a, it's in a classroom environment. It's controlled. It's typically low stress. And uh, we design a scenario and we throw problems at at the we call them the players, the people uh, that are working through the exercise, and then they have to use the plan to figure out how would they respond to it, and it gives us a way to exercise the plans and see if they really work the way they're written, and then we take feedback. We modify the plan. And then the next step beyond that is usually something called a full-scale exercise where we actually have boots on the ground. So uh, folks may have seen these. We do them every, we do a bunch of different full-scale exercises, but the most common one that we do is up at Jacksonville Airport. So we're, um, the airport's required to do one by the FAA every three years. So we get the fire trucks up there, park service comes out, Jacksonville Fire EMS, Sheriff's Office, Police Department, Emergency Management's there. Usually the airport will put a call out to the public to get some volunteer victims so people pretend to be in injured and uh, dead bodies and things like that. And, and then we, uh, we respond. And so we kind of do this stepwise progression where we introduce the plan, then we talk about the plan, and then we actually go out into the field and enact the plan. And at every stage, we're taking notes. We actually have people that are specifically assigned as evaluators. And usually I'll bring in my counterparts from other counties to evaluate us. And then I'll go to their county to evaluate them. And they, they're objective and they try to take notes. Or, and they, um, we do what's called an after action report. So we say, okay, what went well? What can we do better next time? And what do we need to fix? And who's going to fix it? And those are developed. So we're constantly getting better is the idea. Now, your systems that you're describing seem very complex and well-organized, well-structured. And I'm sure it helps you all become better responders to any situation. And now taking what you all do, what the emergency responders do and how you coordinate everything, do you ever have conversations with people how they could take what you learn from the practices, the scenarios that you run, how they could, individuals could apply that to their personal lives mm -hmm. and being prepared for situations? Good question. So some of the, some of the exercise stuff that we do with the first response agencies might not have applicability to directly to individuals, but my uh, ex-program assistant, uh, so we're normally a two-person division emergency management. So we're a division of Jacksonville Fire EMS. I'm the coordinator. And then I have a program assistant position below me. Her last day was actually on Friday, uh, unfortunately. Uh, Jenny Kruger, amazing, amazing person. Um, but she's kind of moving on to actually pursue her degree in emergency management, which is awesome. And, uh, cool. and do some other stuff. But um, she was always really good at pulling lessons learned and best practices from other jurisdictions. Like one of her strengths, uh, which is going to be sorely missed in my division, is she was good at looking at the headlines. She was good at talking. She, she had an amazing network of other folks that she's worked with in the wildland fire world because she had a wildland fire background. 
and talking to them about lessons learned from other places. So a lot of stuff from California, a lot of stuff from Colorado, things like that. And that's kind of come back to us. One, one example would be uh, for those that were here during the Saddle Butte and the museum wildfires uh, last summer. Remember that we used a program called Ready, Set, Go. And that is a way of communicating to the public what's evacuation stage they're in, right? Mm -hmm. Our emergency operations plan that's written for the county had two terms in it. It was an evacuation advisory and an evacuation warning or order. Uh, Evacuation advisory, evacuation order. We used it during the horse thief fire. Uh, For those that were around then, uh, when we had to put all of East Jackson under an evacuation advisory, the terms were confusing. People didn't understand what they meant. Jenny had worked on a wildfire uh, uh, down in Sublette County, uh, the uh, uh, Roosevelt fire, and uh, had worked on another fire prior to that where they used this system called Ready, Set, Go. And the idea was ready means that you get prepared and you're doing that all year round. doesn't matter if there's a fire or not. So that means having your personal preparedness plan for your family. That means having preparedness supplies, like a, seven, a two week supply of food, water, things like that. And, and having that type of stuff. And then set means that you could be asked to evacuate at a moment's notice. So back the car into the garage, put your emergency kit in there, make sure the family all knows the plan, things like that. And then go means it's time to evacuate. So during an emergency, you're either set or you're go, set or go. And those simple terms, the community caught on to it so quickly. We didn't even do a public education campaign. We just rolled it out during the museum fire. And then when we did it during the Saddle Butte fire, like you heard people in the community saying, oh, we're in set or, oh, we, we just went from go to set. And, and that communication, that, that method that we pulled from uh, other communities across the country worked great here. And that's, that's something where I think looking at best practices from other places, and we definitely incorporate them here in Teton County. If, if we don't have to reinvent the wheel, we won't. It, it's nice when there's a common language yes. to speak during these times when emotions can be running high and stress level is at an unusual peak as well. Yeah. Um, it's you first mentioned when you got into this conversation, you first mentioned the museum fire. And I was about to ask, well, which one? Because actually, uh. since I've lived here, <laughs> I think there's been two since I've lived here. There may have been another one. And I'm trying to remember. There might have been a small one up there, too. No, this past summer. So we're yeah. looking at the. Yeah, right. The first yeah. summer I was out here, I think there was one or it was I either the right. first or second summer. Yeah. Either 99 or 2000. There was one up there. Yeah, yeah I remember that one. And you mentioned something really important there. You mentioned the personal personal preparedness plan for families. Mm-hmm. Where do people go for resources so they know a way to create their own personal preparedness plan? Yeah. And then secondly, after you say that, I wanted you to talk about how people probably don't take it seriously. They say, yeah. ah, is it ever going to happen to me? Mm-hmm. And so I- why should they really create one? Great, great questions. Uh, so we, we generally direct people to ready.gov. So that's FEMA's um, uh, general individual and family preparedness website. So R-E-A-D-Y.gov. And they have a planning section. Uh, they've got a really good template on there for a family preparedness plan. The big things that you want to think about are important documents and papers 
so birth certificates, social security cards, things like that. Like where are you storing them? Do you have scans or copies of them? Something that I do is I try to scan all my important papers, uh, especially insurance documents and things like that and put them into a cloud drive. So God forbid my computer or my apartment or whatever burns down and I lose those papers. If I could get to the internet somewhere, I can at least have scans or copies of those numbers and things like that. And then also making sure that you have a good communication plan. So how will you communicate with your family if cell phones go down or if um, you're separated and you can't get back to each other because the roads are disrupted or something along those lines? Uh, so, so kind of thinking about those types of things, um, having an out-of-state contact is probably the single easiest thing you could do. And you could do it today. You could do it right now. Come up with a family member that uh, lives out of the state that everybody could call and check in with if they're separated here. So especially right after a disaster hits, everybody tries to make a local phone call at the same time, right? Because you're going to check because if, if, you know, mom's at work and dad's at the grocery store, the kids are at two different schools, everybody's going to call each other to try check in. And if the local infrastructure is damaged or if the circuits are all overloaded because everybody tries to make a phone call at the same time, a lot of times local calls won't go through. Long distance works on different circuits. So it's usually easier to call long distance after a disaster uh, than it is to make a local phone call. So if you have a, long di- a family member that lives long distance and everybody has their phone number written down or memorized, remember you can't just have the phone, the, the, you know, Aunt Judy, you can't just have Aunt Judy programmed into your phone because if your phone goes down and you can't access your contacts, you want to have that phone number. Um, so if you had to borrow somebody else's phone, you could actually call that person and just check in and tell them, hey, I'm okay. I'm at the middle school. A teacher said, that they're going to keep us here for the rest of the day, uh, be home in a little bit. And Aunt Judy can kind of be the switchboard and kind of communicate things uh, with family members as they call in. Something as simple as that can really lower your anxiety level uh, during an emergency or a disaster and uh, give you a way to connect with other people until you can actually get back together. So that's a really critical part of a personal preparedness plan. Ready.gov has a lot of other good advice for that. And then as far as like taking it seriously, Yeah, it's tough until it's happened to you. And I will say that when we do our preparedness classes with emergency management, most frequently the the locals that take the class, they are uh, usually from California and they were either in Loma Prieta or Northridge, you know, in in a major earthquake and they know, or Katrina. Um, We've had folks that have taken our classes that went through Katrina and they're like, yeah, I'm never going to be powerless again like that, like not know what to do. And uh, I think that that experience can bring it home or knowing somebody who's had that experience and has been able to explain it to you personally uh, can bring it home. It's hard to relay until you've been through it. I mean, the, the folks that live in the Deer Ridge condos this past summer, I don't think they ever thought that they'd be sitting at home and a cop would have to kick in their door to tell them, get out of your house right now. It's going to burn down. I mean, that fire was, you know, the the Saddle Butte fire was that close to to the back of their condo. They don't really live in a wildland urban interface. They don't live down Fall Creek Road in the middle of the forest. They're on on the side of the butte. And and if that can happen to them, it it can really happen to any of us. So it's, it's, and, and what do you do? What do you do when that happens? When they say you have to leave right now? So it's, uh, yeah, I think it could be tough unless you've been through it. Yeah. And I, I feel that what you said as well, whether you live in an urban area, such as a main, a major city, it can happen there as well. Mm -hmm. Just like in a rural place, because some of those earthquakes 
that you mentioned impacted major cities, New Orleans. Mm -hmm. I remember after Katrina, a few years after visiting a cousin and in their closet, they had a few different plastic boxes and I was being nosy. And I said, so what are all those boxes in there? That's interesting. You have all those file boxes. And they said, after Katrina, that's what we learned to do. That has all of our critical important information. So if there's ever another emergency and we have to leave, we grab our kids, we grab our dog, and we grab those boxes. Mm-hmm. And that's the and, most important thing. Yeah, just having it in one place and having the plan, having everybody know it um, mm-hmm. can really help lower anxiety levels too. How often are those personal stories shared so other people in communities can understand the importance of being prepared? You know, I don't know. Uh, we, haven't, we haven't made a, uh, an actual effort uh, specifically towards it. We've used examples of it. So uh, NPR did a, a fantastic podcast series called The Big One, and it was out of uh, public radio out of Los Angeles. And essentially this, this podcaster for NPR looked at what would happen if the big one hit, the big earthquake hit Los Angeles today. If it hit right now while he's at work, his wife is, is you know, uh, an hour, two hours away. The kids are in school. How would they get back together? And he kind of tells a story and he walks through and he interviews people that were in the big quakes, that were in the big earthquakes, uh, North Ridge, Lone Prieta, things like that. And, and he brings their experiences in, but he also kind of tells a story with it. So we've used that as an instructional tool um, for several of our preparedness classes. And it's really gone over well with folks. Like if you've got some time to kill, it's, it's, it's a five or six uh, part series told in a narrative story fashion. And it's, it's really good. But I, I, I think those personal stories hit people. We haven't really worked very hard to capture those locally and it's it's probably a really good idea yeah put that down on your list there you go yeah. I'm, I'm taking notes too <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna look up that podcast i've never heard it but I, npr does some fabulous podcast series it, it, it was yeah it was really good now let's get into the current emergency if mm-hmm. if that's what you call it i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna take a big leap of faith and say that with the covid19 pandemic that's spreading around the globe that you would consider that an emergency? Yes. Uh, legally, it has been declared so as well. So in, in, in my world, there actually is a legal definition for okay. uh, a lot of these things. So, you know, uh, not uh, originally uh, the president uh, declared an emergency for COVID at the national level. And then uh, the um, the governor did as well at the state level, Governor Gordon. And so did the county commission and the town council. So uh, there's actually a disaster declaration made by both uh, the town of Jackson, Teton County, uh, the governor and the president. So we have a FEMA, every, all 50 states and all territories have disaster declarations current right now um, with the federal government. And uh, I, I don't know if that's ever happened in the history of our country. Uh, I, don't quote me on it, but I think this is the first time. And uh, when we look at at this and and yeah it it's an emergency we have you know there's risk to uh public health and and to people to individuals thankfully uh in wyoming we we haven't seen many deaths any deaths are bad um but we haven't seen a, a terrible amount but it, it's even people that get sick can can have long lasting impacts the rest of their lives so to say someone is recovered you know th- they could have permanent damage due to the illness as well so it's it's mm-hmm. not always as simple as saying oh well we've we've quote unquote only had one death that's that's still somebody's family member somebody's friend um, but even those that have recovered could have long lasting impacts the stats 
are horrible at telling the story. Like you said, the story is impactful. Like we should be collecting stories from these disasters. The statistics are horrible ways to tell a story because it's just a number. It doesn't mean anything. So yeah, definitely an emergency. There's shortages of supplies, like we personal protective equipment. Um, as businesses start to reopen, they're all going to find that it's really hard to get this stuff. Testing supplies, uh, there's shortages of. So these are all things that we see during an emergency or a disaster. Uh, so yeah, definitely qualified as such. It's just lasting a very long time. Yes. Yes, <laughs> it is. Now, when this first started happening, were you working 24-7 on call? You're probably always on call 24-7. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I, um, so I'm emergency management. We're primarily responsible for public alert and warning in the county. So uh, the Nixle system that people are probably aware of, you can mm-hmm. text Teton underscore WY 888-777 to sign up. Uh, but you can get emergency alerts from us. But we also manage the outdoor warning siren system in the county. We manage wireless emergency alerts. So if you've ever gotten that really annoying alert on your cell phone, we do not send out the Amber alerts. So don't blame us. Those all come from Cheyenne. You can blame (laughs) Cheyenne for those. But the other wireless emergency alerts we send like for the evacuations and stuff. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, so we're kind of on call for that um, all the time. And uh, but at at the beginning of this, the way it started out for us, me and and um, one of the firefighters, we were scheduled to go to a training in at the Center for Domestic Preparedness in Anniston, Alabama, uh, the first week of March. Mm-hmm. And uh, Center for Domestic Preparedness is a Department of Homeland Security school that is the premier uh, kind of bioterrorism slash instructional school in the country. And uh, we were going for an instructor development course, but they're also, they also have like an old decommissioned hospital on campus. So they do a lot of trainings with like hospital staffs on how to respond to a pandemic and they have all the instructors and everything there. So when, when we were starting to see the cruise ships coming to the United States that had folks on them with COVID and they didn't know what to do with them, what they did was is they took them off the ships and they sent them to the center for domestic preparedness, which is the old Fort McClellan. So it's a huge military base. Um, and it's got dorms and stuff all over the place. And they of course segregated people, but they were telling us at first, they're like, well, we don't know if we're going to do the class because we have to host folks with COVID here. And at that time there weren't any cases in the country. So uh, they kept our training going. We did it, came back. Uh, And then the day I came back, we had a, we were talking about exercises before. So we had a tabletop exercise scheduled with the health department. And this is an annual tabletop exercise. We do it every single year. uh, And it's uh, pandemic flu. And we do, you know, we're going through this exercise and they're talking about shortages in uh, supplies and they're talking about how everybody's going to get hit at the same time. So uh, how do we deal with it when we can't reach out and ask a bigger or another jurisdiction for help because everybody's dealing with the same problem at the same time kind of a thing? How are we going to isolate people? How are we going to deal with all these problems? And of course, that day we did the exercise was the day that the first case showed up in Washington state. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody at the exercise at the health department was like, oh, isn't that funny that we're doing a pandemic flu exercise on the day that there's the first case COVID in the United States. And uh, lo and behold, three months later, we're, <laughs> we're, we're in the middle of it. And, um, you know, the, the pandemic flu planning, it's, it's not the same exact disease, uh, it's, but it's similar in, uh, in a lot of the aspects. So we were actually training and, and doing exercises for it, uh, which I think is the reason why we got folks to come together so quickly 
and they understood the potential impacts of something like this that it would have on the community and that we needed to get people on board and we needed to get them on board quick uh, to come up with solutions. And that, you know, it, it the old saying, uh, plans are nothing, but planning is everything. It, it really, it really comes. And, and I'm, I'm a big believer in that. I mean, if I had the resources, yeah, we could write a plan with a checklist for every single thing that exists and every single possibility, but having a general framework and having the right people at the table to come up with decisions and, and come up with solutions, I should say, to problems is more important to me than having a specific checklist for every single little thing you need to do. Because, you know, as soon as you get to item three on that checklist, you're like, well, wait a minute, this, this, this COVID thing is doing something different than the flu did. So that doesn't make sense. Like we can't, we couldn't have anticipated some of these things. Some of them we could have as a country. And, um, but I think um, as a county, we're doing uh a pretty good job of putting that training and exercise to good use. And uh, we have an amazing team at the health department uh, led by Jody Pond and uh, Rachel Wheeler, our public health response coordinator. She's kind of, she's in my position, but in public health. Um, so she does a disaster preparedness and planning and all the work that she has put in making everybody in the health department and at the hospital and everywhere else take all this national incident management system training making them sit through these tabletop exercises, making them do all this stuff is, is paying dividends right now. Cool. I'm glad that our community sees the importance of doing the training. I, I like what you yeah. said. I like what you said earlier was uh, planning plans are nothing. Planning is everything. And I stole that. That's, that's either Eisenhower or Patton or one of them. Uh, it's, all right. it's somebody a lot smarter than me, but they realize that, you know, uh, you know, most plans do not survive uh, what is an initial contact with the enemy. So uh, mm. as soon as the disaster hits, whatever you thought was going to happen is out the window. But do we have the framework in place? Do we have the lines of communication set up? And most importantly, have we built those relationships before the disaster hit? Why is that important, building those relationships? I, the relationships are everything. Uh, the, the rest of the stuff, the plan, it doesn't matter. Nobody opens the thing. I mean, nobody. <laughs> who's who's going to read? Other than me, who's going to read a 500-page plan? And, and and it's it's great documentation. It's great to have that framework. But like reading the, the every single line, it's not going to happen during a disaster. But having a good relationship, for instance, between, I mean, simply the relationship that exists between town and county government, it's, it's not always great. But it's pretty dang good. And that makes my life so much easier. The relationship between the sheriff's office and the police department makes my life so much easier because they work together. We have an incredible group of nonprofit uh, organizations, houses of worship called uh, Teton County VOAD. And it stands for Voluntary Organizations Active in Disasters. They've helped with the Budge Landslide. They helped with um, the, the Saddle Butte Fire. They helped with the Museum Fire. And it's just a bunch, not just, it is a bunch of nonprofits and houses of worship and things that agree to help our community during an emergency. And we meet every month just to keep that relationship built. No kidding. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's fan and, and, and it's a fantastic group. It's sponsored by First Western Trust. They actually let us meet up in, the, up in their office uh, every month. We've been doing it for... Oh, hell, it's got to be five or six years now. And uh, if not long, no, it's longer than that. And the entities that are helping our community now, 122, they're a member of our, our VOAD. Jacksonville Community Counseling Center that's doing so much to help folks with, uh, you know, this is a very trying time when it comes to mental health issues and things. Mm -hmm. They're a part of our VOAD. Wyoming Workforce Services, which is a government agency, is actually part of our VOAD because they realized after a disaster, 
one of the most important things we could do is get people unemployment uh, benefits and insurance quickly so that they can make sure that their they and their families are taken care of. And they, so they wanted to be part of this, this group so they could just be in the loop. Yeah. So those relationships ahead of time are, are critically important because we know each other's personalities. Like during a disaster, I probably have a very different personality than I do when it's not a disaster. And that's probably not my best self, right? I don't mm. want somebody to meet me for the first time and be like, oh, Rich is a jerk and not realize that I'm not always like that. And uh, so some, something as simple as that, uh, I think is incredibly important. And what we find when we look at the research that's been done by FEMA and it's been done by a lot of other organizations, the, the communities that are the most resilient to disasters, because we, we can't stop disasters. So we want to make sure that we bend and we don't break, right? Resilience is what it's all about. And can we bounce back? because we know we're going to get hit with bad things. Uh, we can't stop them all from happening. So how quickly can we bounce back? And our resilience is built on these community organizations that we have, you know, 122, Jackson Covered, um, uh, the Community Foundation, uh, local civic groups, local uh, fraternal organizations, things like that. Like it's, it's that's such a huge part of what makes our community great on a good day. But during a bad day, those community ties, uh, houses of worship, the community that they build through there is what is going to make somebody more resilient. It's going to make them be able to come back after the disaster because they've got networks of people that can help them out. And uh, that's more important than any, you know, government funding or assistance you could ever get. Well said. It's much easier to call somebody that you know to get help and to buy into what needs to be done than calling somebody you've never met before and never had a, a dialogue with. Know your neighbors now. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's the important part. And, and be nice to them. Yeah. <laughs> it's, that's, that's a very important lesson. Yeah. I, I want to touch on one final topic before we wrap this up today. And from my understanding, you help lay out and set up a website that I'm looking at right now, one of my other screens, teton-wy-ema.maps. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our, uh, our dashboards. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. How did, how did this dashboard come about <laughs> and how did you get involved? Your emergency management coordinator. Yeah, that is a good question. And how, how am I going to stop being involved in it is the bigger question. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, the, uh, the dashboards came about, there was uh, some prompting from uh, our elected officials early on. And, and that's where, you know, I received my policy guidance and direction from is from the town council and the county commission. And uh, there was a, a gap, a need for emergency uh, information on COVID to help them make policy decisions because they felt like they were making decisions in the dark. And this information was out there. Like there was some pieces on the St. John's Health website. There were some pieces on the Wyoming Department of Health website. Um, some folks were just emailing stuff to the Emergency Operations Center, which I manage. And, and so there was just little pieces all over the place. So we decided to put it all together. I am not a uh, GIS person. I'm actually bringing it up right now. So I know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> I am not a, a GIS person myself. I'm, I've been training myself in it. We've, uh, we've started working with some of these tools. And uh, I realized that we could put it all into one place. So we kind of created this uh, dashboard to collect and show uh, the community where we're at. And we realized it would become a lot more important as we moved into this recovery uh, stabilization phase, I should say, and then, and then eventually into recovery, because some of these metrics are going to determine and let businesses, for instance, know, is this a good time for us to reopen? Are the trends going up or down? 
what, what are we looking at? So we put this together and, and initially like the first tab when you go, and if you go to jhcovid.com, our, our community COVID page kind of hub, there is a link to all the dashboards at the top. Cause like you tried reading that link out and uh, that would be impossible. Nobody sure. could write that down, but you could go to jhcovid.com and get to it. But the first the first dashboard, the executive overview, kind of has all the health stuff. So the hospital capacity, um, how many COVID cases we have in the county, has a bunch of graphs. And, uh, and that pictures. was initially, yeah, a lot of pretty pictures. <laughs> um, that was initially going to be all it was. And as I started looking at it, I was like, man, this is, uh, and, and it's evolved a lot, but I was like, this is depressing because especially when we look at the total number of COVID cases, that's just reported as a total cumulative number. Like that, that number is never going to go down. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's like, people are just going to sit here on a dashboard and keep refreshing it and just seeing that number go up and go up and go up and go up. There's no progress. There's no, I, I felt like, especially in that case, the numbers were misleading and they weren't telling a good story. I got a comment from somebody that, that emailed me with our Nixle messages. So we were sending the situation report Nixle messages. We do them once a week now. And they were like, why do you just keep reporting the number of cases? Uh, they're like, that's kind of depressing. They're like, aren't people getting better? Like, shouldn't you be taught? And I was like, you know what? That's a good point. Um, people are getting better. So we started reporting the numbers of folks recovered and including that. And then we created new statistics for active cases on the dashboard that kind of show, you know, we take the total cases and then subtract the number of folks that have recovered and then subtract um, the number of deaths that there have been. Uh, and that gives us the number of active cases in the community. So yeah, we have a hundred total cases reported for Teton County, but right now we have eight active cases. So people mm -hmm. are getting, people are getting better. And then still, even with that stat, it's, it's still a depressing um, kind of a page. So I, I made that second tab, the community impacts, because I really wanted to be able to show, yeah, this COVID thing is horrible. Uh, it's doing a number on the economy. Uh, folks are out of work. They're having a hard time, but this incident, this disaster has really shown how resilient our community is and how it can come together um, when we have a, a common goal and really take care of things. I mean, when we look, the school district started providing me how many meals they were providing to kids every day. Uh, so we've been keeping a running tally and graphing it. Like as of Sunday, 28,506 meals provided by to kids, um, which, is, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's mostly the school district, but that's also two weeks during spring break when Whole Food Rescue stepped up to the plate and was like, hey, we know the schools are shut down for two weeks for spring break. How about we come in and serve, serve meals for the kids so there isn't a two-week gap that, that these families aren't and these kids aren't getting fed. Um, so that's like fantastic story. The cupboard is provided over 6,000. They've, they've served over 6,000 clients um, as of this past weekend, which uh, I mean, it's blowing away their previous numbers. You know, tracking things like unemployment. Um, why, once again, all these groups are part of that BOAD group. So that relationship I built with them is is they're they're providing me this information so we can now show it to the community uh, and they can figure out where we're at. Are it, are things getting better? Or are they getting worse? And uh, yeah, so th that that was kind of the whole idea behind this the whole dashboard thing. Yeah, it's, uh, the the meals to kids is just that was my favorite one. Yeah, by far mind blowing to but just to know for the size of our community that at this point, that's larger than the county population. Yes. Yeah. And that's uh, yeah. And it's, it's, 
And we see this during all the disasters. We see folks mm-hmm. step up to the plate. Like we've seen initiatives here locally, like uh, we are JH, you know, doing the hand sanitizer distribution in the beginning. Like they, they realized that there was a need for, for hand sanitizer for the general public. You know, we had, we had sources for the hospital and for stuff and, and uh, healthcare providers, but the general public was having a hard time finding it. And, and, stepped up to the plate to work on that. Uh, we see quarantine cuisine. We see these other groups, like people are just coming to the table and they're like, Hey, there's a problem. Government necessarily can't fix it, or they don't have the resources to fix everything at once. Uh, how about we step up and, and provide part of the solution. And it's been, it's been great. The communities really come together for this. And, uh, it's, I'm, I'm constantly impressed by, by what our community does. Yeah. We, we live in a special place and, I'm sure people living outside of our community as well will have some inspiration coming from you uh, to get involved as well to see how they can help their communities also. Because every community needs that resiliency Mm -hmm. right now. That's so important because government can't do it all. Um, They can't and, and they're not going to. And first and foremost, we have to take our own actions, positive actions. Yeah. Rich, this has been an absolute delight learning from you today. And this is great. Thank you. Hearing, hearing what you do for our community and how other communities out there uh, have the same resources and the importance of, mm-hmm. of what you do. If people wanted to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way for them to connect to you? Probably the easiest way would be uh, email EM, so it stands for emergency management, mm-hmm. uh, at gov. That'll, that'll get to me. And um, yeah, any questions or uh, resources looking to get pointed to, um, I'd be happy to provide that. Awesome. Thank you, Rich. This has been a pleasure. Appreciate your yeah. time today. Thank you, Stefan. Take care. We'll see you. To learn more about Rich and his role in emergency management, please visit the JacksonHoleConnection.com, episode number 92. Right now, I'm looking for more ratings and reviews. So right now, stop what you're doing and give the Jackson Hole Connection podcast a five-star rating however you listen to your podcasts. Many thanks to everyone who helps the Jackson Hole Connection come alive every week. My editor and marketing by Michael Mori, my wife Laura, my boys William and Lewis, and everybody else that helps support me in this community. Thank you, everybody, and I really hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to seeing you back again next week for the Jackson Hole Connection.